for the past several Sundays, many guys at Cornerstone have been gathering together to play flag football. Uh, it's been a glorious time of physical exercise and catching and catching balls and missing balls and chasing guys and being chased by guys. And last week I was being chased by I think Daniel Pio and Han Kim and I was thinking to myself, I'm 35 years old and I'm being chased by two guys. What's going on here? felt a little funny. I'm 35, by the way, not 32. Um, <laughs> they didn't catch me, though, even though I'm 35. I was able to. Uh, it's a glorious time. It's open to everybody, all the brothers come out and uh, enjoy some good exercise. A few weeks ago, it was raining, and my wife asked me if I'm still going to play. I'm like, of course. Football is an all-weather sport, and if it rains, it gets better. And, uh, you know, you get dirtier and messier, and it's all part of playing football. And you, know, you can't play football without wanting to get dirty, without wanting to get messed up, without, wanting, without knowing that pain and discomfort is part of playing a sport. Um, whether it's age or not, you know, Monday or Tuesdays, we email each other, and our intro is always, usually, I'm so sore. I'm sore in parts of the body that uh, I haven't been sore in years. And I can barely walk sometimes because of the pain that's involved with playing on Sundays. There's a parallel here with sanctification in our study in John 17. I think all of us desire sanctification. But we want it nicely. We want it cleanly. We don't want to get dirty. We don't want to experience pain and hardship and suffering. We want the diet sanctification low-calorie sanctification, the kind of holiness that does not require uh, suffering and sacrifice on our part. Well, that has led me to study 2 Corinthians 12 this week and present it to you this week. And I have some maybe good news, bad news for you, that there is no other way to sanctification apart from sacrifice, apart from trials, apart from pain. You want to grow in maturity, you want to walk in holiness. You want to be the kind of man or woman that will make an impact by your life in this sinful, corrupt world. There's only one way. It is through suffering. It is through paying a cost. I've said this many times, and I'll say it repeatedly throughout our study this morning, that many want to be holy like the Apostle Paul. They want Paul's doctrine, but they don't want Paul's life. If you want to be used like Paul, if you want to know Christ like Paul knew Christ, requires Paul's doctrine and Paul's life. Requires for you and I to make the same sacrifices that he made. There is no other way through to sanctification. It is through suffering for Christ. It is through sacrifice and self-denial. It is through selfless service in and for Christ. Practical holiness is not achieved, it's not forged in the safe confines of a Bible study setting, flock setting, or a church setting, but, it is, but it's achieved, refined, and uh, gained within the margins of real life, forged within the context of of the messiness of real life through disappointments through spiritual defeats through desires unfulfilled and with such thoughts 
Let us go to Second Corinthians. We will find great encouragement here from the words and the life of the great Apostle Paul. Remind you that the, the man who is writing this letter is, is Paul, the Apostle from Christ, sent to the Gentiles. He is one of those men who seem almost unreal in his devotion to Christ and his revealed word. You look at his life and he is the picture of self-discipline and focus. He's the kind of guy, he knows what he's been called to and he does it. He has no time to flit around and, and go, go through distractions and, and be passive and just kind of go through the mundane things of life. He knows what he's called to and he chases after it. He sometimes appears almost above and apart from other Christians and certainly from us. He seems like he lives in a higher level of existence, far surpassed from our compromise and we Christianity, Christian lives that we lead. But in this letter, we find revealed, we find Paul revealed as the most human of us all. St. Corinthians reveals a very human Paul with whom we can certainly identify with. This epistle reveals not only Paul's difficult circumstances, but he lays bare his heart. He opens his heart and he spills his guts. And we find out what is really going, with, going on within the man. Paul is more transparent here about his inward feelings and motivations than anyone anywhere else in the whole New Testament. While other letters of Paul may be more profound, none can be more precious than his hard-pouring letter to the Corinthians. George Herbert exclaimed, What an admirable epistle is this epistle. How full of affections. He rejoices. He is sorrowful. He glories and he grieves. Never was there such tender care for a church by a mere man. Of all the epistles, the second to the Corinthians is the one which contains the most intimate revelations. And few can read it without loving as well as honoring the author. End quote. I am certain that this letter was written with tears in his eyes. Tears in its pages. The whole book flows with raw passion and emotion. And the section that we'll be studying this morning, chapters 10 through 13, is probably the most emotionally charged text that Paul ever wrote. It is while he's mired in his deep disappointments and distress, God's grace shines. Turn with me. Just look at some verses, look at some passages in this letter. Turn with me to Second Corinthians 1, 8 through 11. Paul shares with the Corinthians intimate details of his life and the many numerous persecutions that he himself personally endured. Paul gives us a graphic snapshot of the sufferings he experienced just prior to him writing this letter. Chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. 
For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope, and He will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. He says in verse 8, that His, his affliction was such that he, he lost any hope of survival. He does not simply fear that he will die. He is convinced that he will die. More than this, he is convinced that he will die a great death. We're not sure what he is exactly speaking of in verse 8 when he says affliction. But I believe Paul is saying that he will die while he is suffering. He will die in pain. He will die while struggling. It is a burden that is so great that he says he does not have the strength to endure it, that he pleads with them to pray for him. We find that even Paul had his limits. And the sufferings that he experienced in Asia surpassed those limits. Turn to chapter 11, verses 23 and 28. He recounts a blow-by-blow recounting of his sufferings. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, and often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from all these things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is made to fail? Made to fall, and I am not indignant. The afflictions here are not mentioned in the book of Acts. Those afflictions, trials, sufferings that Paul endured in Acts, recorded by Luke, are just the tip of the iceberg. He reveals that he suffered so much more. In fact, he felt so discouraged that we had read in chapter 1, He despaired of life. He actually wanted to die. He was like Jonah. He despaired of life. Indeed, in our hearts, he said, we felt the sentence of death. In chapter 11, verse 28, it says, 
of all the physical pains that I endured, they paled in comparison to the spiritual agony that was within my heart, my concern for the churches. You know, parents can understand this verse. Right? Parents can understand this verse. That you singles or married without children can't understand. All you Bible study leaders can understand this verse. It's flock shepherds. And if you're a pastor and you don't understand verse 28, then you don't deserve to be in the ministry. The daily, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, burden that you have for God's people because you so love them dearly. He says, who is weak and I don't feel weak. His heart is directly tied to the condition of his people. If someone is weak, he feels weak. If someone falls away from Christ, he is disturbed, he is angered. The physical pains paled in comparison to the spiritual burden that he, that he carried with him as he ministered to the churches. And to top it all off, um, the church that he cared for caused him direct pain by their persecution by their accusations, by their rejection of His love. Listen to this. The greatest pain Paul ever knew came from the people he loved the most. Right? Strangers can't hurt us. People that we don't know can't hurt us. It's those members that within our family, people that we know personally have access to our hearts. And for Paul, he opened his heart to God's people, the church at Corinth, he labored with them. He gave his life, gave them what was most precious to himself, which is the gospel of Christ. And he modeled Christ's likeness in every way. And yet these very same people rejected him, turned against him, and caused him pain. There appeared to be a full revolt against him in the church at Corinth. There was a group from this church. They accused him of many things. They accused him of being a false apostle. They accused him of being an imposter. Of having wrong motives. They said, Paul, he collects his money for famine for the Jerusalem church. Where did it all go? You know what? I think I know I heard something. You know, he bought himself a nice chariot. You know, he bought himself a nice robe. He's got a nice little thing going in Jerusalem. That money's not going to the church. That's going into his uh, bank account in the first bank of Jerusalem. They, they accuse him of being a coward. You know, he's all bold and strong. As soon as persecution hits, he runs away. Right? He's running away not to protect us, but to protect himself. They attacked his character. They accused him of being morally loose. And above all of this, they knew how to hurt a guy. They criticized him of being a poor speaker. 2 Corinthians 10.10 His speaking amounts to nothing. He is unimpressive. They know how to hurt a guy. They know how to hurt a preacher. Right? I mean, I can identify with that. You know, as men, we identify ourselves with the work that we do. And so if someone says, James, you know, you're not a good athlete, no problem there. You know, James, you know, you attack my physical appearance. You know, maybe I'm a little hurt, but you know, no problem there, right? I know who I am. You attack, you know, attack and criticize my personality, it's okay. But man, someone says, man, your sermons put me to sleep. 
Man, your sermon is just no good. It's all par, brother. Man, you know how to hurt a guy. And that's exactly what they're doing. At Hamadam attack, they're attacking Paul, attacking his ministry, his preaching. Paul loved them, yet led by these false leaders, they rejected Paul and some even hated him. Chapter 6, 11 and 12. Paul said, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. We open wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. But it is not a letter of despair. It is not a letter of Paul giving up on the Corinthian church. No, that's the last thing he would do. Paul perseveres in his labor of love for these dear saints. Just a few verses previous. Chapter 6, verse 4. Listen to what Paul says. As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known as dying, and behold, we live as punished and yet not killed. And verse 10, full of sorrow, yet always rejoicing. Poor, yet making many rich. Having nothing, yet possessing everything. Aren't those beautiful words? I'm full of sorrow because of you, but I'm full of joy. You know, I'm grieved beyond the point of sorrow, but I rejoice in Christ. I have no money. I'm poor, but I make many rich through Christ and His gospel. Because I'm saved, because I have eternal life, I possess everything. And therefore, with a meek heart, I love you. That is the context in which it culminates the chapter 12, verse 7, our text for this morning. That's the context of this letter. And it reaches its height in today's text. And from today's text, we learn how to gain practical sanctification. Sanctification is a, is a messy, dirty affair. But anyone who is willing to pay that price is sure to find the prize of partaking in the divine nature of our God. Verse 7. So to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Paul said that he was given a thorn in the flesh. He calls it a messenger of Satan. Thorn, it literally means a stake. A sharpened wooden shaft used to impale or torture someone. And he says, it's been given to me. And it causes me much pain, much agony. Now, Paul doesn't explain to us, describe to us what this thorn is. It is unclear. 
many commentators have speculated at the exact nature of this stake that was causing him so much pain. Some said it's a physical malady that he had an epileptic seizures that caused him much difficulty in life and ministry. Some said he had a speech impediment that hindered him as a speaker, of God, a preacher of God's word. Or others said he had a sickness. Some said other physical maladies that affected him. One English commentator actually said that he's talking about his unbelieving wife. Right? So he's talking about this messenger of Satan and he's subscribing it to this unbelieving wife. And you know, I use this joke. It's kind of true. It's funny because it's, there's some truth to that. You know, here's Job, a righteous, blameless man of God. And God causes him all this suffering to test his faith. So he takes away all his property, takes away all his livestock. All his sons and daughters die. And then gives him boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. And then he praises God. And then what does his wife say? Job, why don't you curse God and die? Man, what a discouraging thing to say for someone who's trying to trust in Christ. Maybe Job said, God, you forgot somebody. You know? <laughs> There's one more here. Right? Some said, that's what Paul is going through. Unspecified, the answers can be legion. But a statement, a messenger from Satan gives us a clue. The most likely answer is that he is talking about someone a person that Satan is using to torment Paul. Most likely the ringleader from the group at the Corinthian church that is opposing Paul. He's talking about this one who is leading the attack against Paul and his ministry, one that was turning the church that Paul loved against him. And Paul was tormented by his attacks. The Greek word literally to be punched struck with the fist to be punished so to Paul their verbal attacks were to him like physical and violent afflictions Paul says this is my problem this is what is happening but he understands that it is all within the will of God he understood that God has a divine purpose behind everything especially our sufferings and he highlights to us that all suffering is within the will of God. That suffering has a purifying purpose in our lives. First of all, suffering as a believer is God's means of drawing us into a greater knowledge of Himself. Suffering humbles us and causes us to put our hand before our mouths and incline our ears to listen to God. Enables us to know God as we would not otherwise know Him. If it were not for suffering, we would not know the extent of God's mercy, compassion, and comfort. Suffering is a divinely appointed means of knowing God intimately. Psalm 119, the writer said, David said, It was good that I was afflicted. It was good that I suffered. It was good that I went through pain. Why? Because through that I learned your decrees. 
suffering is a privilege because through suffering we draw near to God and near to the heart of God. We've experienced that, haven't you? In those hours of trial, we go to the Word and we discover God as He is, not as we want Him to be. In our humble state, God opens our eyes to, to the truth about Himself. Secondly, suffering is a means of God. It's God's means of granting to us greater knowledge of our own sinfulness. God's means of granting to us greater knowledge of our own sinfulness. And yesterday in CLI, we're studying through Exodus, and we discovered that through the plagues that God gave to Pharaoh, Pharaoh experienced so much suffering in his life and for his people, even his own family. The oldest son died, and what did he discover? The depth of his depravity, his pride and arrogance, his refusal, utter refusal to submit to God. And we just discovered that times of trial we see our hearts and we see our selfishness that we only care about ourselves we see our pride we see how we have shaken our fists at God now Paul discovered this he thought he was righteous pleasing God on the, on the road to Damascus he was rebuked by Christ in, 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 in person and his eyes were shut blinded for three days and it was during that time he saw his hypocrisy. He saw the bankruptcy of any righteousness that he claimed to have. Thirdly, suffering produces holiness. Suffering coupled with the Word of God forges maturity, godly character. James 1, 2 through 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in, in anything. We should consider it pure joy, suffering, because that produces what God desires in us. Godly character, practical sanctification, true holiness. The way to Paul's character is through his doctrine and through suffering. There's no other way. J. Oswald Sanders said that there are three requirements to be a godly man. Three requirements to be a true servant of God. And he gave three words, each of these words beginning with the letter S. The first word was sovereignty, meaning it's up to God's sovereign grace. God raises up those whom He chooses to bless and to lead. The second S was servanthood. Those who will be spiritual leaders are those who understand and practice servant leadership. The third S was suffering. Was suffering. Suffering, he said, is a tool which God employs in the life of the Christian to make him a godly leader. Oswald Sanders wrote this in his book, Spiritual Leadership. The background of that book is that 
he nursed his first wife until she died. He later remarried, nursed his second wife until she died. He then went to live with his niece to whom he ministered until she died of disease. It was in this context that he wrote his classical book, classic book, Spiritual Leadership, Experiencing God's Sovereignty, What It Means to Be a Servant, and the Value of Suffering. There are so many purposes, purifying, refining, encouraging purposes of suffering. When someone says, you know, I haven't really suffered, I've just been really blessed, that's not a good thing. When someone says, I've suffered so much, it's something to be envied, something to be uh, revered, because you know, God loves you so much to cause you to go through so many trials, because He so wants your holiness. It's something that, that's to be, it's to be treasured. Or for Paul, he ex- reveals the exact purpose of his sufferings to all of us here verse 7 he states why Paul gave him this thorn in the flesh to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations to keep me NIV says from becoming conceited because God is using me to write revelation to write prophecy to reveal the will of God so he says for himself, the purpose of, this, of his suffering is for humility. Suffering has a purifying effect. It humbles a man. We saw that in Peter's life. How in his pride declared that he would not deny the Lord, that he would go to prison. No, he would die for Christ. And then within a few hours, he denied the Lord three times. And that spiritual agony that personal failure humbled him, making him usable to Christ. God used Satan to humble Peter, and Paul is saying, God's doing it again. God's using this messenger of Satan to humble me. Three aspects of humility. Three truths about humility. First of all, humility leads to faith. Humility leads to salvation. Augustine was asked, what are the prerequisites to be saved? What are the prerequisites to be a possessor of eternal life? And he said, the first prerequisite, first requirement is humility. What's the second? Second is also humility. What's the third? You want to be saved, you must be humble. I faced this firsthand years ago um, when I was uh, visiting my relatives in Korea. All my relatives are non-Christians at that time, except um, the only son and our other son in our Shin clan. And he's, uh, he's like ten years younger than me, and so I'm the oldest Shin, and he's the second. You know, like, not, anything there's not anything to pass down or anything, but just in our clan, he's the second in line to whatever is left in our Shin clan. Um, and yet he struggled with health all his life. He was he's very sickly. He's got a weak heart, you know, weak liver. Many times he was in the hospital and they, they gave us phone calls saying, uh, looks like this is it. You know, he's in his deathbed. We don't think he's going to make it to the night. Um, you know, he's the only Christian in the whole family. 
very smart young man. He grew up in Singapore and Japan. Uh, speaks four languages fluently. He wanted to be a doctor, but his weakness of his uh, body hindered him and limited him from pursuing that. You know, I was talking to him during that visit, and I, he shared with me his testimony of how he became a Christian in a hospital bed. When he thought he was going to die, he called out to the Lord, and God saved him. He's been going out to church ever since. He was sharing with me how sometimes he gets angry at God. He gets bitter. He struggles with um, just oppressive thoughts. As he considers so many of his friends who are sinners, not Christians, and they're living such ease and comfortable lives. They're full of health, full of strength. They're living for self, selfish pleasure, living out of pride. They have the ability to pursue their life goals, and yet him, he's a Christian, and yet he's suffering. And he can't pursue his life goals. Well, by God's grace, he gave me uh, some things to say to this young man. I said, you know, you should be thankful for your physical illness. You should be thankful for your uh, maladies. Because I know you. I, I, I remember you when you were young. Without this physical uh, illness, you'd be the most prideful guy in all of Korea. And that's not an easy thing to do. Koreans are very prideful people. But you'd be the most proud. But God used your illness to humble you so that you would embrace the gospel of Christ. I said, what's more precious? What's more important? Having a healthy body that leads to pride and rejecting Christ or having a weak body that has humbled your soul, causing you to embrace the gospel and have salvation, have the forgiveness of sins? first aspect of, of suffering or humility is that it leads to faith. Second aspect of humility is that it leads to dependence upon God. Dependence upon God. That's exactly what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1.9. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God. Paul said all these happen so that we would not trust in ourselves. Our confidence of our lives and ministry would not be on our own strength, but it would be, would be upon God. Pride causes us to rely upon our own efforts. But the joy of humility is that we can depend upon the Lord and give all glory and honor to Him. And thirdly, Humility leads to prayer. Humility produces prayer. Verse 8, three times, I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Pride says, I'll take care of it. Pride says, I don't need God. I'll solve this problem. I'll outwit this messenger of Satan. I'll have a showdown and debate him, and I'll put him in his place. Humility says, God, I depend upon you. And without you, nothing is possible. You know, I said this many times, that one's prayer life is a barometer, a reflection of one's pride. So if you find yourself struggling to pray, and repeatedly you don't have a prayer life, the source of it is pride. 
because you're trusting in yourself. If you find yourself having a a prayer life, it reflects a humble heart before the Lord. Well, verse 9 is beautiful. We see Christ's response to Paul and uh, Christ's response to all of us. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. He is not talking about common grace that is given to everyone, righteous and the unrighteous. Matthew 5, 43 through 45. How He allows the sun to rise on the evil and the good. How He sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He allows blessings to be given to non-believers as well as believers. The most cruel and evil people in the world enjoy the joys of family, the pleasures of good food and such. He's not talking about common grace. He's not talking about transforming grace, the grace that saves us, grace that gives us eternal life, Romans 3, 23 and 24. He's talking about sustaining grace. The grace that shields us, protects us, strengthens, empowers, blesses. The grace that sanctifies believers. The grace that is active in the life of the believer. See, common grace is unconditional, given to everyone. Transforming grace, grace that saves, is unconditional. There is no, there are no conditions gives to everyone who believes. That faith is given by God. But this sustaining grace, this, trans, this uh, sanctifying grace is different in that it is conditional. It is conditional. John Piper calls this the future grace of God. Again, common grace, transforming grace, saving grace, they are unconditional. But this grace, this future grace, is conditional. John Piper said, to be sure, there is unconditional grace and it is the glorious foundation of all else in the Christian life. But there is also conditional grace. For most people who breathe the popular air of grace and compassion today, conditional grace sounds like an oxymoron, like heavy feathers. So for example, when people hear the promise of James 4.6, God gives grace to the humble, many have a hard time thinking about a grace that is conditioned upon humility. But conditional promises are woven throughout the New Testament. For example, if you forgive men, I will forgive you. Pursue sanctification without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Hebrews 12, 14. 1 Peter 5, 10. After you have suffered a little while, He will restore you, make you strong, firm, and steadfast. It is conditional. If you and I want to receive this inexhaustible, boundless, sufficient grace that shields us, protects us, sustains us, that sanctifies us, a certain criterion must be met. And what is that condition upon which God releases this wealth of power? Paul tells us, or in fact Christ tells us, that His 
grace is made complete in our weakness. Made perfect in our weakness, infirmity, in our sufferings, in our difficulties. When we come to an end of ourselves, God's grace begins to operate and begins to be manifested. You know, we all want the power of the Christian life, do we not? We all want to live the victorious Christian life. The question is, how can we receive victory? How can we have that power? You know, one of my hobbies is watching TBN. Eternal, no, no, Trinity, not Turner Network Television. Uh, that's what the other, the other activity I have. But uh, TBN is my other hobby. Trinity Broadcasting Network. You know, it kind of pumps me up. It fuels me up for right doctrine. When I see how you know, vigorous and committed they are to their false teachings, it gives me just more fuel for the fire to pursue after uh, truth and, and right life. Well, years ago, they used to have this program uh, called the Power Team. You guys ever see that? Right, these guys with 16-inch biceps, right? No necks, 16-inch biceps, you know, like huge thighs would come up with tight clothes, almost illegal. They would, they would come before churches and they would rip open telephone books. You guys see this? And they would break 10-inch ice blocks with their heads. They would handcuff themselves and they would ask for prayer. And they would say, with the power of Jesus, they would break open... Um, and they'll break apart these handcuffs and saying it is the power of God. Now, I gotta, seeing that show, I gotta say to myself, how is that the power of God? That's not the power of God. That's the power of those biceps, right? That's the power of his, you know, the muscles on his back. The power of God is, and who should I pick on here? Like if Janice were to break open a telephone book, right? I'll pick on a guy, right? Joshua Lee! Or to break a 10-inch ice block with his head, we would say, that's not Joshua. <laughs> right? We would say, that's God. Right? We see an illustration of this in the Bible. In Judges chapter 7, 2 through 9, don't turn there, we read it this week. Gideon and the army of Israel are going against the Midianites. And they're ready to fight and wage a war and wage a Definitive battle against the enemies of God. And God says, you have too many men. You have too many men to fight against Midians. What? That makes no sense. It's good that we have many men. It's good that we are, they're the underdog. And God says, how will I receive glory if you have too many men and you defeat the army of Midian? So, Tell your men, if anyone who trembles with fear, tell them they may turn back and leave. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. Two-thirds of the army, they were scared, they went home. 10,000 men left. Gideon's like, okay, we're about evenly matched. How's that, God? And God said, still too many men. 10,000 is too, still too many. Tell them to go down to the water, and just tell them to drink. And some men got on their knees and drank water right out of the river. Other men lapped the water with their hands. Only 300 men lapped the water with their hands. God said, separate these men. Take the 300. With the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. 
Why? So that it will be clear that not by might nor by strength, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. They were victorious, not because of their physical power, but because of their weakness. Let God's grace might be shown, displayed, and manifested. That's what God told Paul. That's what Christ tells us. The condition for us to experience, to receive the sanctifying grace, is through our weakness. So what is Paul's response? I love this. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, verse 10, I delight in weaknesses, in infirmities, literally physical pain, physical limitations. I will delight in your insults. I will delight in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. Why? Because when I am weak, then I am strong. Another version says, I take pleasure. I will take pleasure in all these things. Albert Barnes said this. Let me just read it to you. Since there are so many benefits that result from trials, since my afflictions are the occasion of obtaining the favor of Christ in so eminent a degree, I rejoice in the privilege of suffering. There is often real pleasure in affliction, paradoxical as it may appear. Some of the happiest persons I know are those who have been deeply afflicted. Some of the purest joys which I have witnessed have been manifested on a sickbed in the prospect of death. I have no doubt that Paul, in the midst of all his infirmities and reproaches, had a joy above that which all the wealth and honor of the world could give. And see, here is the power of the Christian faith. It not only supports, but it comforts. It not only enables one to bear suffering with resignation, but it enables one to rejoice. And listen to this. Philosophy blunts the feelings. Infidelity leaves people to complain in trial. The pleasures of this world have no power even to support or comfort in times of affliction. But Christianity furnishes positive pleasure in trial. It enables us as sufferers to smile through the tears. Quote. Enables us to smile through the tears. Because God's grace is given to those who are suffering. A few final thoughts for everyone talking about grace. Have you experienced? Have you received? Have you understood and embraced the grace of God? The transforming grace of God, the unwarranted favor of God, the free gift that God bestows upon sinful men who are, if anything, undeserving of such a great, great mercy. The grace of God that is given to us through the death of Jesus Christ. Do you know this grace? I'm asking, are you a Christian? Are you a follower of Christ? Are your sins forgiven? You might say, how can I know, Pastor James, if I receive this grace or not? 
you know, not by some experience, not by some feeling or sentiment. Paul knew he had received this grace. He said in 1 Corinthians 15.10, the grace of God, by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace to me was not without effect. No, I work harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that is within me. He is telling us that grace of God is not without effect. When a man is a recipient, possessor of God's grace, that grace operates in him. That transforming grace is powerful in him, causing a radical reorientation of his life and radical change in terms of his or her behavior. Grace of God is the most potent power in all the world. When it penetrates a man's heart, he is forever changed. Change and not so much stopping this or stopping that, but the reference point of his life is changed. So after his grace, what he lives for, what he pursues, what he dies for, completely changed. And you can see it in his life. You can see it in his efforts. You can see it in the decisions of his or her life. It is manifest. So looking at your life, you can see clearly if you're a recipient of God's grace or not. No one has received a pick and save or big lots version of God's grace. No one has received second-hand, non-functioning, corrupt, compromised version of God's grace. The same grace that Paul received is the same grace that all Christians today have received. Are you a Christian who knows firsthand this grace of God? Secondly, for the Christian, how are you living your Christian life? Are you uh, living it according to the flesh? confident in your strength in your discipline in your personal will in your physical abilities your personality your intelligence your talents are you living it according to your flesh or are you living it according to your weaknesses according to the Holy Spirit delighting in your weakness acknowledging your utter depravity, own evil, utter uh, sinfulness, acknowledging that you're unable to do anything, unable to alone read and understand the Bible, unable to pray, unable to praise God, to worship Him, unable to procure any amount of holiness in your life, because apart from Christ, you can do nothing. Are you living your Christian life in humility, utterly depending upon God for everything, for your personal disciplines, spiritual disciplines, for your ministry, for your family, to be what God wants you to be. Are you doing it according to your flesh? You will do it. Are you doing it? God, give me grace. God, help me. I depend upon you for all things. Finally, have you suffered in Christ? Do you consider a pure joy when you go through all kinds of trials and tribulations? 
If you are, you should consider it pure joy. Because that's where true sanctification begins. True godly character, true maturity. I was talking to a brother this way this week and telling him, you know, um, you know, we're going through you going through a trial, going through a difficulty, you should be so thankful because now you can really start growing as a believer. Until now it's all about read the Bible more, pray more, read more Christian books, go to flock, go to church. That's all just external Christianity. That's all shallow and petty and external. True sanctification is when you go through a trial, you're humble to the core and you're, you see your sins as they are. You see yourself as God sees you. You see all the pride, the selfishness, the anger, the pettiness. You see all the corruptness. You see all the deceit. You see all the lust and self-pleasure. You see all those things. And you say, God, this is who I am. Would you please help me? That's when true sanctification begins. Have you gone through that? If you, have, if you are, if you have, you should thank God, you should be full of joy, and you should fight the battle for sanctification there. And then finally, final point, uh, when you're going through trials, that is not the time to stop ministering. You know, we get this, you know, quite often, where guys and girls come to us and say, I want a break. I want to take time out. I want to back down from ministry. And I kind of want to disappear for a little bit. Or I want to go to a different church for a while. Maybe I'll come back later. Maybe I won't. And we're like, why? What's going on? We act like we don't know, but we know what's going on. Right? You're going through difficulty. You've gone through a disappointment, personal trial, difficulty in the family or work. And your instinct, my instinct is to run. Saying, well, God can't use me now. It's the last thing I should be doing. No, a true servant of God meets the needs of others while his own needs are not met. True servant of God seeks to meet the needs of others when his own needs are not met. Suffering, personal difficulties and trials does not, do not prevent you from serving others. In fact, it equips you to minister to others. That is when, when you're that humble, when you feel you have nothing to offer to others, that is when you are most useful to God. That is when you can make the most impact. It's not what Paul said when he came to the Corinthian church. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Jews want signs, Greeks want wisdom. But my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, of the Gospel of Christ, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power.
Lord, we're in awe of the, the Word of God. Lord, we are like little children before You, for You know our hearts so well. You know our thoughts are bare before You. You know our ways. And You have uh, rightly diagnosed our spiritual condition. Oh Lord, we marvel before Your Word and the truth that contains that is contained within. Lord, we call upon Your name this day and ask for Your grace, for Your mercy, for Your compassion, and that You would show us Your grace by opening our eyes to who You are, opening our eyes to Your Word, and opening our eyes to the a reality of our weaknesses, our inadequacies, our difficulties, and our sinfulness, our selfishness, O oh God, so that the requirement might be met that we would delight in our weaknesses so that your sufficient grace might be manifested in our lives and through our lives. May we not run away from our fears, run away from our sins. May we confront them head on freely acknowledge to you, God, that we are helpless to be saved without you, and we are helpless to be sanctified without you. Help us to see our lives with your eyes, through the lens of Scripture. Therefore, may we rejoice in our sufferings. May we rejoice with all the people and things you have placed in our lives. And may it humble us cause us, Lord, um, resolve to, to, to commit to a, the real work of sanctification, the real work of growing in maturity and godly character. We ask for this grace in our church. Lord, I personally ask as one of your under-shepherds of this church, knowing that so many are in such need of uh, your grace, so many are in such need of your grace to grow and truly be holy in your sight. Or may we not just brush this off as one other Sunday or one other sermon. But Lord, you know our hearts. You know our ways. Or may you do a mighty work in each heart this morning. In Jesus' name.